I am Shreen Pashek, and you're listening to the Modern Retail Podcast, where I speak with executives leading the reinvention of retail. We've spoken a lot on previous episodes of this podcast about venture capital, but it's always really come from the founder's perspective. And there have been some really heated conversations about VC, about investments, how founders look for investments, what they look for uh, when they're talking to potential investor partners. But this week, we're going to go the other way. My guest today, Caitlin Strandberg. Caitlin is a principal investor at Lair Hippo, which has invested in companies like Allbirds, Glossier, and Casper. That's quite a portfolio. Hi, Caitlin. Hi, how are you? Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to have you. Okay, first things first. Like I said, we have had, we've sort of been on a little bit of a DTC retail founder series Mm -hmm. um, last couple of months, I'd say. And we've definitely, I think more than ever, there have been two topics that have come up over and over. One is Facebook, 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 web CAC, you know, paid marketing. What role does that play? How do you rein that in? Number one. But number two has always been valuations when to take money, who to take money from, what to do once you get that money, how to find the right partner. And there have been so many discussions around that. But really, like I said, the one thing we haven't had is the perspective of the people we're talking about. What are what do you see, sort of just big picture, kind of some of the challenges and trends right now in early stage startups as they're coming to you and when they start looking for investments? What's kind of the big picture landscape right now? Sure. So uh, for a little bit of context, so I work at a fund called Lair Hippo and we're early stage investors. We're primarily seed investors. So while we do um, consumer, we also do a fair bit of enterprise. So we're generalists. We look at both. But seed is really the stage that we focus on. Um, we invest, uh, kind of majority of the investments are in and around the New York area, but we do have investments in California and a little bit in between the coasts. So, um, we're a little bit all over in that sense. And so when we're looking at seed investments, um, you know, now it's, it's almost 2020, very soon to be 2020. Um, I've been working in venture since 2012 and the landscape has really changed. Even like New York tech from 2010 to 2020 is the decade has, has changed quite a bit. So even seed investing in 2012 is, is very, very different than it is now. And you were say. doing seed at first mark as well. So I was doing, um, more series A, series B at first mark. So I've seen a little bit of later stage. Um, and then I was at another firm called Flybridge and that was, in 2012, um, and we were doing seed and Series A, but like that tech, that like language has changed just just with like the massive growth in the industry and um, kind of like more capital in the market, more venture funds, and so I think what it means to be a seed investment now um, or a seed company, you've probably raised a little bit of money. There's a whole new category called pre-seed um, or friends and family or angel. Uh, angel investors, and you've probably raised a little bit of money to get your product off the ground to really have baked out a little bit of the business model, a little bit about what you're building, um, identified a little bit of the target consumer or the target customer, and um, you're actually coming to a seed investor with something that's like fairly baked of mm-hmm. like, you know, this is the problem we're solving. This is the solution we're, we're going to be using to solve it. And this is how we're going to go to market as fast as possible in the next 18 to 24 months. Um, so in the past, it was maybe an idea and a deck or a, a presentation, um, a little bit of experience and intuition around the market. Now you need to have a little bit more behind you when you come to pitch seed investors. So that's like the big thing that's changed. And I would say in terms of challenges that companies typically face, um, you know, when they're raising seed, I think fundraising is just such a bear. It is like, 
man. Um, <laughs> raising venture funding takes a lot of time, energy, and effort. It takes a lot of kind of meeting many different people where maybe your business is in thesis or not with all these investors and you're really in pitch mode. And it really takes um, a number of conversations. And we're talking maybe 50 to 100 conversations just to get an investment, your first lead check. Mm -hmm. And so I think like a big challenge that I see with founders is keeping stamina going, keeping kind of the momentum going, um, kind of fighting the fatigue of pitching and then really presenting their company well every single time they meet a new investor. I think you really have to show up. I think that's probably like the biggest challenge and that's ones that founders really don't expect to come up against. Keeping the energy up. Keeping almost. the energy up. Um, fortunately, they're pitching the thing that they love the most, which is their business. So it's not so bad. But um, there are a number of challenges that, that, invest, that um, you know, seed companies have, and I'm sure we'll go deeper and deeper into them. But uh, the first is just the the process of fundraising. When you said something earlier about just sort of that process, how it's changed since, what, 2012 or so. How much, you know, one of the things I've always wondered about is a lot of, for example, you have companies under the Lara Hippo portfolio that are, you know, retail, really retail companies. Um and there was, I think, maybe 10, actually more, say 20 years ago, sort of it was all about tech and software. Are some of the same principles, potentially erroneously, being applied to kind of these direct-to-consumer, call them retail, call them whatever, but consumer brands? Mm -hmm. And what are the effects that has? The reason I ask this really is I see a lot of people throwing around words, especially founders when they're just entering the industry, that to me, I'm, I'm like, that's... Yeah, maybe for software. Yeah, maybe those numbers make sense for software. Maybe those growth numbers make sense for software. Maybe even the entire thesis of sort of how you're thinking of your economic model made sense for software or tech, that as a consumer brand, it's completely different. And you have such a great seat that I'm curious if I'm right on that. Um, I, I don't know if you're right or wrong. I think, it's, I think consumer investing is actually very different than enterprise investing. And because we do both, we see both. Um, we actually have two different pathways based on the company that comes in and we invest in. If they're a consumer company, they're kind of dealing with a handful of different metrics and there are different milestones that they're hitting before they raise their next round of financing versus a uh, software company or enterprise company. I think one thing that you've you've noticed, which is um, I think is dead on is, you know, in the past, Venture capital has only been around for like 25, 30, 35 years. I've been saying this for like five years, so I have to add five <laughs> years. Um, it's not that it's not that old of an industry. And in those early days, it really was all about technology. It was really about semiconductors and technology and hardware and computers. And then that turned into like a software revolution. Um, and now I think we're at a wave where um, there's a reinvention of brands. So um, our brands like kind of Casper and Glossier, do they have some of the elements of software? I would say maybe on the e-commerce side, but really it's a totally different supply chain and a totally different kind of product set and a totally different customer and very, very different distribution. So they are kind of, they're they're very different. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, consumer investing being a relatively new side of venture capital, I think that that's true as well. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we've done a, a bunch of research in the consumer space and there's a great, um, there's a great report or a chart out of IAB which looks at um, the top consumer brands uh, in the United States and, and the top, you know what I'm talking about, yeah, the top brands that were the top brands in the 1920s remained the same through like 1983, like two moved spaces, but they were like largely the same. It was like the top 20 brands. And so when you saw, um, you know, when, when the first internet revolution occurred and you saw, you know, the, the channel 
the distribution channel be disrupted, but also, um, you know, more transparency around supply chain and logistics and also being able to source different types of products or, or um, ingredients in different ways, it was very natural that brands could now suddenly be disrupted. So those things that made um, the PNGs, the Unilevers, the Nabiscos of the world, uh, or even the Kodaks of the world, uh, it was so difficult to kind of like produce new products because you needed big R&D warehouses mm-hmm. and big teams. Now with the internet, you actually didn't need all those things to bring a product to market. And so there was um, wide open space for new brands to come to market, distribute directly to consumers using the internet, and then um, be able to outsource different elements of of company building than than ever before. And so that's where we saw a rush of brands happening. So like Casper was a great example. Warby Parker is another example. Mm-hmm. We saw those kind of early uh, in about 2010. And there was a whole wave of companies that took advantage of that. And that kind of brings you to the, you know, the Facebook and Instagram and the digital marketing side of things. Um, but was not possible before 2005 and sure. up. It was, it was just, it, it's just easier, and people said this, I'm not, I'm not making this, but mm-hmm. it's easier than ever to start a company. And then Absolutely. you mentioned Facebook, Instagram, I think Shopify is sort of one of the big ecosystems mm-hmm. around which a lot of these are built. And you brought up Casper and Warby, and I almost like classified them as like the first wave. Yes. And now it feels like maybe we're in the second or maybe even the third wave where now the product itself almost, and here's my other thesis, which is the product itself kind of matters less. The product is good, whatever the product mm-hmm. is, whether it's a mattress or it's a lipstick, the product is good. There's also copycat products, which just mean that they're making probably equally as good a product. So which then makes me think that a lot of these companies are essentially the thing that gets they get differentiated on is you use the word brand, I use marketing, that these are really marketing companies. So when, you know, say someone comes up to you and they're like, okay, we have a great product, you're sort of, you're like, yes, the product's fine. When you're evaluating them, just as a, is this a potential investment for, or is this just a good business? How much is the marketing kind of the thing you're talking about? Because to me, a lot of these direct-to-consumer brands, they're just really good at marketing. Yes. Yes. Uh, (laughs) No, I think, I think you're right. I don't use the word marketing. I really do use I use brand because I think that that encompasses a little bit more. But I think you're totally right. Like, um, you know, it's really difficult to evaluate companies really before they have any sales. And like, um, fortunately, we've seen some of what I think are the best um, kind of like next generation brands um, firsthand and up close. So I think my team has a really good eye for kind of what we call brand DNA. And that's something we absolutely look for in founders of our consumer companies. So um, in lieu of a bunch of data or sales data or, um, you know, really the ability to diligence the space, because when you're disrupting an industry, you can't go to the incumbents of the industry and say, hey, like, what do you think of this product? Like, what do you think of this? They're going to say, like, oh, that's like, it'll never work. That's a terrible idea. Um, it, that's like, it's kind of like classic disruption theory. Like, <laughs> so you can't really diligence it because there's no one that's going to tell you, oh, that's a great idea. Um, maybe the, maybe you look for people to tell you that's a terrible idea and you know that it's going to be a great idea. But, um, but I think some of the things that we look for, especially it's, especially in our consumer investments, like it's such a founder driven decision. So we look for people that have brand DNA just like built into them. They have a clear sense of what they're building. They have a clear idea of look and feel. They understand the consumer in an interesting way. So, and they're no, they know how to kind of communicate and talk to that consumer and, 
and give them something that they haven't really seen before. Um, so like Casper is a great example. Some of these other businesses are a great example where now, you know, millennial pink is everywhere, but at a time, Classy was really the first one to do it. And so, um, we really, we're looking for that type of instinct in a person and it's, it's not something I can really describe, but you know when it's there and you know when it's not. Can you give me, I don't know, an example of one that just wowed you where you were like, maybe someone, one of your, uh, one of your investments where you said, yeah, this, this person or these group of people, they have it again, knowing that it's, sure. it's a art rather than a science. Totally. You know, I, I really love, um, the story of Allbirds for us. Gosh, it's, it's, and I wasn't on the team at the time, but the stories are me, and I it's just become like I stuff live. of legend. <laughs> exactly, and it's like the like very recent legend. But I, you know, and I know the team, and they're fabulous. Um, you know, I think they came to us, and we were the first check into Allbirds, and they came to us with this idea that they were going to build a um, shoe made out of sustainable materials, and they were going to they were going to be on everybody's feet in the world. You know, it was, a, it was a former professional soccer player and a former kind of consultant, longtime consultant at Deloitte, and so you had kind of like the utility, understanding the market, understanding the space. And then you also had kind of like the business, uh, the business minded, operations minded, execution minded person. So you had this very complementary skill, but they had a very clear view and their brand was about doing good for the world, showing the world that you could build everyday products with sustainable materials. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to kind of live in a world where Nike and Adidas are doing all kind of like the unethical uh, manufacturing and labor practices that they do. And so their brand was, we're going to show people that you can build anything from sustainable materials. The shoe's going to look great. It's going to feel better. And it's going to be an interesting enough product and a brand that's going to resonate with people. Um, now, when they pitched us, the brand wasn't called Alberts. It was called Three on Seven. When Casper pitched us, it was a company called Duke. Um, like king, queen. Ah, got it. <laughs> um, when Glossier pitched us, it was a company called Into the Gloss. So we weren't looking, and it was a blog. So we weren't looking at these brands, at thinking and kind of like judging them at the time, and kind of being like, "Oh, this is a you know, this is a really good looking brand that maybe a service provider did, like Gin Lane or Red Antler." But we were looking at the founder and thinking, mm. like, "Do they have a unique and differentiated view?" If the world turned that way. Could they be at the forefront? Could they kind of make the world that they want to be living in? And do we trust them to have this unique insight to build a brand that's going to resonate? And so that's what that's I guess that's kind of like the brand DNA piece. Yeah. But but we are in the business of, um, you know, making investments sometimes before there's a product and before there's even the name and the logo. So you're kind of like looking for that element. That's that's really interesting. And I completely agree. And that's why it's sort of I was trying to get at the first wave, second wave, because now, and I don't mean this to denigrate brand founding stories. They're all often really good mm -hmm. stories, you know, and we have so many of them on the podcast. And every time they tell the story, I'm always amazed at what a beautiful story it is. And it's always real. It's not like they're making it up. Does it get hard? Because everyone has, founders are passionate, right? Yep. Like that's whatever they're founding, like whether you believe in that thing or not, like mm -hmm. they're passionate people who've probably given up you know, lucrative jobs to do this and oh, taking it. So much more than lucrative jobs. Even. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. They're taking a risk. They're doing so much. Yeah. So if you're looking for, and again, I know it's an art, not a science, they all have an emotional connection that right. really resonates. And today I'm curious because there's sort of this glut of new brands and if there's a new brand every single day. And I always ask this question, A, how do you start even talking about differentiation? Then you start looking at numbers and mm -hmm. so on. And then B, do you worry that there's almost 
too much. Like slow, slow down yeah. the fire hose. There's too, there's too much going on. Oh, there's so much here I want to talk about. Uh, so please guide me because yeah. there's, I wanted to respond to every single time you took a breath there. Well, let's talk about the, everyone has a good story. Right. How yes. do you find the great Love story? Love that. Um, one thing that what you just said really resonated with me was, um, founders have given a lot to do what they're doing. They've given up, they've sacrificed jobs, they've mortgaged things, <laughs> they've, um, not seen their spouses or payments. Partners. They've really, that they, you like, I mean, so many things I can't even imagine and can't even discuss. And that's why it's even a privilege to be able to be an entrepreneur in some ways, because it's really not open and accessible for a lot of people, uh, because a rational person would not be an entrepreneur. So, I have nothing but respect and admiration for entrepreneurs because they're doing like the really hard, mind-bending, world-changing work. And so just by virtue of them coming to me to pitch this thing that they eat, sleep, and breathe, and they wake up in the middle of the night thinking of and stressing of, like I think um, just the by the, the fact that they're in the arena, I'm just like so enamored and impressed and like I feel very grateful that they're sharing the business with me. Like that that is... I haven't built a thing in, in a long time. Um, I've built a to-do list and I've built an <laughs> email filter, but like, like just the, by doing that, it's, it's like such a big hurdle. And um, so that's kind of like the first thing. And so when anyone comes to you, you're like, holy moly, like, okay, like these are, um, this is the thing they care about the most. And so I, I really focus on what it is they're building and what their story is. A question I ask in every single meeting is like, if you, if you were to pitch me right now, I would say, hey, Shereen, why don't you tell me a little bit about the business and kind of a little bit about your background, but really I care about the Genesis story and of all the things you could be doing for the next 10 years and of all the sacrifices you're going to make, like, why is this the thing that you care the most about? Like, if anyone listening is going to pitch me, I'm literally going to ask you that in the first one minute. Um, and that Genesis story piece is really interesting. And also your background is really interesting because I'm looking for, now I'm looking for um, kind of founder market fit. So Casper is a great example. Um, that wasn't just like a random idea. And they kind of like thought about an industry that was ready for disruption. Like Philip Krim actually had experience working in the mattress industry. The Warby Parker guys had experience in the um, kind of eyewear company. Um, you know, Emily Weiss came out of Vogue. You know, like, and so you're looking for that authentic founder market fit. And so you can have an amazing idea and you can, um, it can be in a really big market, but if you don't have that founder market fit, you're not going to have that, like, um, that deep interest and passion that's going to push you through the really hard, difficult things that come in any entrepreneurial journey. Um, and, uh, so we kind of, we definitely look for those pieces. Um, that's, and it really that's people stand out pretty quickly. Okay. Um, you find out pretty quickly if it's a couple of MBAs that identified an opportunity in one of their classes and they're building a business in this, and it could be an amazing business, but will it be a billion dollar business? Maybe. Um, but you really need to have just so much more behind it than um, just like an interesting idea with an interesting kind of spin on a space. So then that brings me to lots of founders, <laughs> lots of MBAs, <laughs> um, and lots of great ideas, genuinely. I, yep. it, it, I don't, again, I don't mean that sarcastic. A lot of really great ideas. Amazing ideas. You go on Shopify, you can at least start doing something pretty immediately. So you've got wealth of resources now. Um, oh, yeah. The entrepreneurial sta software right. stack is, is awesome. It's great. So got all that. And then that's where I start coming to every day there's a new brand on mm -hmm. Instagram. And every day that brand starts looking a lot like the other brand I right. saw yesterday. And some of them just kind of go and disappear. It's like my like DTC graveyard mm -hmm. list that I keep where I'm like, what happened to that one company? So then do you really keep that list? 
I, I may have a list. There are companies that have right. literally disappeared because right. all they really had to begin with was maybe they had a product, mm-hmm. hadn't maybe done any sales yet, but really put a lot mm-hmm. of money behind marketing on yeah. Instagram mostly and hoped that it would work and, you know, it didn't work. Yeah. I mean, that's something we look for pretty early. Like, um, you know, part of this new idea of brand is community. And this idea that you have an audience that wants to engage with the brand, they want to be a part of the community. It's why people put stickers on their laptops or buy merchandise for, um, you know, that have a start that has a startup name on it, because it becomes an extension of how they identify in the world and also kind of express themselves. And so, uh, and and we're going to see a whole new wave of businesses that stand for something that consumers resonate with the thing that they stand for, particularly Gen Z, and. That's where we're going to go to one of your initial questions, which is like, do you really need to have the best product or can you have a good enough product, but an amazing brand? Um, so so all of that kind of comes together with uh, kind of a metric called organic growth. Um, we're When we're looking at consumer investments, we're looking for businesses with organic growth. The pay for growth days are, are behind us, particularly because it's so competitive to spend. We mm-hmm. don't like venture dollars to be um, going to Facebook and going to Instagram because you're not really proving that you found product market fit. You're proving that you can get in front of people and transact, but are they repeat buying? Are they coming back? Are they telling their friends? Is there word of mouth marketing? Um, is the press picking it up? Um, are uh, are there kind of like natural leverage points for you to kind of get um, new consumers in the door without paying for them? That's where you kind of actually start you want these businesses to look a little bit more like software. Sure. So like, you know, in, in the developer community, there's a um, kind of customer acquisition strategy, which is called developer-driven adoption. Um, so one person comes in, spreads it across. It's having one influential friend in your friend group telling you, oh, I got like the bomb.com. You guys should get it. And then seven other people buy this this hmm. this bomb.com from Glossier. So influencer marketing. You're looking, well, less influencer, more like... Um, the friend that you always get recommendations from. So okay. so like that person that's naturally sharing what they've purchased. Um, but we're looking for organic mar- marketing and we're absolutely looking for more organic growth, more than paid marketing. So we look for, you've got to have more than 50%. Sure. Um, like minimum. And, and we're looking for founders and companies that have been scrappy enough to show that and get that in some small way. Got it. We're going to take a quick break for a message from our sponsor and we'll be right back. Okay, that's really interesting. You just said sort of this great thing, which I really like, which is sort of the days of, and I'm probably misquoting you now, um, days of paid marketing kind of as being like the thing behind us. So there was a time that that was it, right? Like, were people coming to you? And I did wonder this, but when I always ask people, like, when did you start sort of looking for, um, you already had pre-seed and now you started looking for investment and you went to people and asked for money. When did you go do that? And they, a lot of them said it was when we realized we had to spend money to market ourselves because up until now they were doing really well organically. Were people coming to you being like, okay, I need money and it's, I'm making up this conversation. You're like, why do you need the money for? It's Facebook like, well, I want to spend it. <laughs> it's, you know, customer acquisition costs are going up. Like my CPA is, you know, whatever it is. And I need a lot of money because the only way I'm going to scale up is to put a ton of ads out. Were people coming to you and doing this? And were you saying, wait, no, this, this isn't what well, we're people, for? Well, people were absolutely coming to us and saying that. And we were saying, you know, good luck to you. Yeah, right. Because us. we're, yeah, we're, we're in the business of um, identifying and investing in sustainable business models. And I think they're in, in all industries, we're coming off of a trend where um, growth at all costs. And now we're in a space where it takes a lot longer for a company to exit. You're seeing companies stay private a lot longer. Mm-hmm. Um, on the consumer side, it's a slower kind of IPO market. Um, 
the <laughs> at some point you've got to be getting more leverage out of your marketing spend and you've got to be getting more out of your customers. And so while that might help you get early market share, it's not sustainable. And so that's why we're always looking for the organic side. We're always looking for, you know, I would say uh, just any sort of inklings because you don't have the data. So for example, you know, one of the, one of the great little data sources that I really like is, um, is, is Glossier's Instagram. So if you go to their, their Instagram and it doesn't matter what they're posting, but you go to the comment section you just see, um, oh my God, it's crazy. You just see people it. tagging people, right? Like, They're how, like at Caitlin, yep, look at this. Yep. Like at Strandby, like, uh, at four people, like that's word of mouth marketing. Like it's, you've created something that's like so interesting and shareable and that's not an ad. That's just a photo of something. Um, we're looking for kind of unlocks like that all along the way. Like Allbirds is a great example. Like Allbirds spread like wildfire among communities, <laughs> particularly in, in San Francisco where it's like, oh, what's that? Um, so anywhere where you cannot spend for growth really shows that you kind of have hit market product market fit, but also that you've got a product that speaks for itself. Um, we're, if, if a founder came to us and said that that's where they want to spend their money, that's not really a good use of venture dollars. Like venture dollars is to be able to build something that you can use and reuse over and over again to get leverage out of. So that's like an engineering team. That's a, that's a product team. That's um, maybe another HQ and another, another geo. That's maybe creating a customer service team. It's not to be spent to Facebook. It's to find amazing people to do things that you get more bang for your buck in every dimension. There used to almost be like like that, like DTC playbook. I mean, a lot of people made fun of it, but you know, there was one on launching, do the Instagram thing, what I just mentioned. And I do think it's changing. Um, one of the things that I find so interesting that it's changing is sort of this understanding that physical retail is going to be a bigger part of your mm. growth and it's going to be earlier than you thought. I mean, there were I'm, I'm not going to name yes. the one obvious example that basically when I was like, I'm never going to open stores. And then Everlane. Open, yeah, okay. One of our portfolio companies. I wish we had another. I really want another <laughs> example because I've been like, it's it's been done to death. That one poor, uh, poor Michael. Like, I, I'm, I'm going to stop bringing up Everlane all the time with that one. But it's true. Like, mm-hmm. they, they went out and told everybody that they weren't going to open stores, realized they needed stores. And a lot of people, you mentioned word of mouth at Glossier, mm-hmm. stand outside the Glossier store mm. in Soho. And Something you can buy online. Exactly. But there's still people standing, yes. talking to each other. When you, again, people come to you, ask for money, they're looking for all the things you just mentioned. Physical retail becoming more important for these direct-to-consumer brands. And what what sort of are people not getting about why it's so important? Right. I love this question because I'm thinking about it every single day right now. Uh, we've made a bunch of investments, uh, a number of investments recently that actually are starting with a brick and mortar component. So, um, and I'm happy to tell you more about them. Um, but sort of owned and operated, right? Like not. Yep. Owned yeah. and operated. They have a storefront. So a great example is Studs, which is next generation piercing. I've got my earscape <laughs> under this under this uh, headphone. Um, and it's a very small kind of footprint in Soho. It's on Prince and Bowery. And there's a service layer, which is you can come in and get your ear pierced. But there's also a very highly optimized walk-in and walk-out space where you can buy new jewelry. You can buy one earring, then buy three others. So it looks good on your ear. You go and you take photos. You engage with the brand. But you can also just shop and buy online. Um, and it's a really good example of, um, you know, that direct-to-consumer is really a channel. It's not a business model. It's a way to market that didn't really exist before. And next-generation brands have to have, have to be where their consumers are and where their customers are. And because everyone's spending so much time online, consumers are spending a ton of time online, they're actually craving interaction 
and they're craving experiencing a brand that they feel resonates with them. And so if you can be where they are in some way, you're going to be able to get more out of that customer and build a deeper customer relationship. You're also going to be able to have a place that's going to um, be a safe space for people that maybe don't interact online. So uh, when I think of Allbirds, for example, you know, where our office is right next door to their store in Soho, um, that place is always a mob scene. It's unbelievable. And I always think like you can buy these shoes online and they ship anywhere. But there are a lot of consumers that just don't want to buy shoes online and they want to try it on and they want it. They want to um, they want to not even experience the brand, but they just want to try it on and make the purchase there. And so as brands get bigger and as companies go beyond their early adopters, you really have to be where your next consumer shops. But then to that point. So, like the direct to consumer alley of sort of the Mercer and Grand around their you know oh, situation, yeah. you know where I'm talking about. Um, I, I completely agree with you. I think physical retail is so important, and especially if you want to go beyond the consumer that shops online. But is New York really the place to start? Shouldn't that store be in like I don't know Arkansas? That's like, so funny. I get that question all the time. Um, and the reason I ask it just to finish that is because that's where a lot of founders do tell me like look the store really is a brand cost mm -hmm. it's a marketing cost and it it works and yes it's sort of conversions and people do buy stuff from there but look if they wanted to reach people who weren't online i do not think new york city manhattan soho was really the place to do it mm -hmm. so i i i totally understand that point and i i think it's a great question because i think everyone should kind of think of this question if you're building a, a business in the space the rent is high in new york <laughs> right um you know but i i think it's a couple things if i if my kind of advice and perspective to founders that are kind of wrestling with this is if you're building a consumer brand you really need to you get a lot out of building it in the locations where the zeitgeist is created new york city soho like could not be more of an epicenter for um, kind of consumer taste, consumer sentiment. Um, New York is in a, it's a highly populated city. There's a ton of diversity. You can test things very quickly, even if you're doing retail or pushing people to retail. When you're in the business of starting a business and doing something entrepreneurial, which means rapid iteration very quickly, you need to be experimenting a lot. I think you're gonna learn a lot more putting a storefront in New York than you would in Arkansas. Um, you're going to learn the things that you need to learn so that when you open up in Arkansas, you're going to be able to drive traffic effectively. It's going to be the right store kind of footprint for what you're building. You're going to know how to merchandise it. You're going to know all these different things. Um, you know, entrepreneurs and people that are starting, you know, even brand businesses, they're largely first time. They're very rarely coming out of the industry. And if they are coming out of the industry, um, they have deep experience in some behaviors that actually aren't necessarily as relevant to build next generation brands. And so that's kind of how I think about it. But I will say, um, I do think, you know, I'm not interested in investing in companies that are brick and, brick and mortar only. And I'm not interested in companies that have a plan just to have leases all over the country. Um, I think that the future of retail and the future of brick and mortar is going to look very modular and very different based on the market that you're in and the geography that you're in. And you can leverage digital data and your relationship with consumers online in different ways to build an experience that's going to work for them. But then on the business side, build an experience that's going to get um, massive leverage and massive cost efficiencies. Um, you don't have to just be in a mall and see what happens. Like you can really predict things. And we've seen that with you know, Warby Parker, their stores perform amazingly well. Casper has a sleep store. Um, obviously, you've got Glossier, which is just like 
Holy moly. It's like, a scene, basically. And it's a young audience. And the young audience wants to kind of be there and experience the brand just like, you know, any other type. It's an activity. It's an experience. And everyone says, oh, it's like social sharing. People want to take photos. I think that that's actually less important. Mm-hmm. I think people just want to experience something in real life, um, something that they like and they're excited about. And I go back to like back in time with my family, like... Um, I have an older brother who played basketball. I played basketball. But like if we were in a city where there was a Nike town, we were going (laughs) and we were hanging out there for three hours and we were going to see everything that Nike had to offer. Like that's always been a thing. Um, And another uh, maybe another example in our portfolio is a company called Camp. Um, so this is they actually have their head, their headquarters and flagship location on 15th and 5th here in New York. So not the Soho corridor, corridor ah. but the Fifth Avenue corridor. Oh, there is another one. <laughs> there is, yeah. Um, and Camp is is a is a reimagined toy store. Uh, so you know, Toys R Us kind of filed for bankruptcy, and um, y- you know, it's it's they're reimagining what retail looks like in a pretty interesting way. So it's one part toy store where there aren't any shelves. You can go in, you can, kids can play with the toys, um, a, you know, a, a parent can kind of digitally kind of pick and choose and add things to a wish list. So on one hand, it's a toy store where you can transact in person. On the other hand, you can go online and buy online. They also run activities every day, like every couple hours, there's an amazing activity. It's where the experience layer. Yeah, okay. and so if you have a membership, but, but the fourth piece of it is um, they're also heavily sponsored. So the way the business works is every three months, the theme of camp rotates and it can travel to the other locations across the country, but the theme is sponsored. And so they just did a travel camp where they had amazing travel brands. Um, they did a, a cooking camp where they had Brawny sponsoring the kitchen cleanup station. And so it's a way to get extra leverage out of a physical space, but also create an experience that changes so people come back and back and back mm-hmm. again. You don't have to just buy a toy to make the business work. You can kind of interact with the brand in a handful of different ways and it makes toy stores uh, and it makes uh, hanging out with your kids fun and productive and a learning experience. And we're, I think we're going to see a little bit more of that. It's operationally, um, you know, somewhat complex, but it's working in a way that is uh, that I really think is going to be a little bit of the future. And those can travel all over the country and they can be in Arkansas, but also in New York. And you can actually see the trail of testing go through a country. Yeah. Um, that That's just, I'm so excited to see um, where that one goes. They've got a location in downtown Brooklyn. They've got a location in um, Norwalk. They've got a location in Hudson Yards. They just opened in Dallas. Um, they've got, you know, five or six other geos that are going to hit soon. Uh, I, love, I love businesses that take an interesting approach on the brick and mortar experience. I guess my last sort of question set is really around um, something you, you've you actually talked about this, and I think you talked about this at, at a conference we did, but, you know, there's been a lot of talk around sort of like the revenue plateau. Some people call it a wall. There's a ceiling, there's a gap, um, and it depends. I don't know where it is, but, you know, the $10 million gap, the $20 million. But this essential sort of question of like, can these direct-to-consumer, or just let's just call them consumer yeah. startups, sort of scale beyond a certain point mm-hmm. without sort of very drastically changing their business model. And I know that you have these brands in your portfolio that are right. far beyond them. So let's almost not talk about them because sure. in some ways I feel like those are the examples everyone talks about. Yep. Because, but there are hundreds of right. other companies sure. that aren't going to be $100 million plus unless their business model changes. Mm-hmm. Is there a plateau that direct-to-consumer brands kind of naturally hit? And what makes the few that go sort of beyond that or get over that different? 
Right. So uh, there's absolutely a plateau. Um, you know, we talk about some of our best companies, but there are also, you know, we've got companies in our portfolio that are great businesses, but just never really kind of broke out. We, you call the companies we've talked about breakouts, basically. Um, and they haven't just kind of broken out. And we actually did a good about a good amount of research. We had a fabulous um, uh, kind of MBA associate with us this summer who looked at all of our companies and all the data at all the stages. And and we uh, we were able to kind of identify some commonalities between the breakouts. And really, it's kind of getting to $100 million in revenue within you know, I don't want to be too specific, but within a, but, but like very, very quickly. And you could tell within the first 18 months what companies were going to be a breakout or not based on their revenue growth. And so that early window of you've raised seed capital, it's time to go. The, the number doesn't necessarily matter, but the rate of growth matters most. And, um, if you weren't breaking out in the beginning, it was, I don't know that we have any companies in our portfolio that kind of figured it out after the first 24 months. So it's almost like important to think about the size of the company that you are setting out to build. Because maybe you're just never going to be. Uh, maybe that business just isn't going to be that big. Right. But that doesn't mean it's unhealthy. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and um, you know, venture, biz- venture scale businesses are, if the world was full of venture scale businesses, we'd be in a lot of trouble. <laughs> um, there are a lot of amazing brands and a lot of amazing companies that actually kind of are getting to that 20, 30, 40, 50 million dollar um, revenue per year type business and, and people love them and engage with them. I would say from a venture perspective, um, you definitely have a couple of those, but that's not what you're looking for. That's not where you really get, you go into kind of like the venture, um, dynamics, but, um, but for them as a business, that's fine. It's fine. It's, it's fine. And, and it's, there's a case to be made of those companies probably should not have raised venture funding. If they have, there are a lot of ways to get capital. Um, when you kind of take venture capital money, you it comes with some expectations. It comes with expectations that you're going to build a big mm-hmm. business. You're going to get to 100 million bucks in revenue as fast as possible. You're here here to scale. This is what you're committed to. Like you're going for the big B, and and we're going to do whatever it takes to help you get there. And nothing is going to get in your way. Mm-hmm. And that's a very different mentality than someone who is building a. Um, you know, a smaller scale business, the type of people you hire is different. The way you structure the business is different. Um, the speed at which you make relationships is different. Um, and so we're looking for, comp- for, for founders that are kind of like breakthrough wall mentality. And, you know, it, it was, I think in the early days of, of like the direct to consumer channel, you were able to see that very quickly, but you're every year of the founder journey, there's a whole new set of challenges and a whole new set of um, things you have to consider and relationships you need to build and ways you need to distribute your product. Like it's always changing over and over and over again. And so you need to kind of look for people that have that level of um, kind of focus and attention, but also willingness to change themselves over and over and over again. Mm. Um, Like, you know, we, you brought up Everlane and uh, to say that you didn't want to bring up Everlane, but like a great example of a founder that can change their mind and change their strategy because of what's best for the business. I would back that person every single time because the no one can predict the world. No one can predict what's going to happen in five years. You just have to see present opportunities clearly and execute on top of them. Um, but even with consumer companies, we're looking for kind of a world domination you know, perspective, because you're unlikely to dominate the world. But if you try, you might get pretty close. You'll cut, you'll, you'll dominate something. And so I think all of those kind of pieces are, are, um, are important, but, you know, maybe one, one other piece here is, um, you know, with, it wasn't that hard to learn 
how to market on Facebook and Instagram. Like you just had to get there early, do it fast. It wasn't really like uh, you didn't need a lot of muscle or experience. Now we're looking for brands that can be omnipresent, like get everywhere as fast as possible. So that means you need someone that understands different channels. You need someone that knows the folks that run, uh, you know, a number of the major grocery chains or, um, or you know, distributors. Or just opening the physical or, store. Yeah, you need to have someone that understands kind of commercial real estate and where to get kickbacks and where to not. Like the type of hire and the type of experience that that hire brings is very different than it was 10 years ago. Um, like, and, and I think that that's going to become increasingly important. And that's what venture dollars are going to go to, finding experts in certain um, kind of areas that are going to usher in the next generation of these consumer brands. Got it. The name of the game, world domination. I love it. <laughs> oh, no, that's, that's, that's just the, my that favorite, sounds, that's my favorite terrifying. part of it. No, I love it. It's so good. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Caitlin, for being on the show. Sure. Thanks for having me. And that's all for today's episode of the Modern Retail Podcast, a show by Digiday. Thank you for listening. Our producer is Pierre Bienname, who also made our amazing theme song. Thank you, Pierre. If you like the show, please head to your iTunes store, search for a show, leave us a review and a rating. It helps new listeners find us. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.